My name is Keith Beavers, and did you know that Taco Cat, spelled backwards, is Taco Cat? Think about it. What's going on, wine lovers from the Vine Pair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting instructor of Vine Pair. And hi! Is that too much? We are going back to Bordeaux. I know I did a whole thing on the Appalachian system, but I want to give you guys some history, some context, and some styles. So let's do one bank at a time, shall we? Let's start with the left bank. This is the left bank episode. E&J Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pair's Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide spectrum of favorites, ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wine. I mean, Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but this is a wine podcast. So. Whether you are new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. We look forward to serving you enjoyment in the moments that matter. Cheers. Oh, wow. Wine lovers. We're back, season four. I don't want to get too much into it because we have a lot to talk about, but I'm just so excited to be back. Um, remember back, I think it was in season one, we did an entire Bordeaux episode, and it was just a compact 20 minutes of the entire Appalachian system of Bordeaux, left, right, and everything else. Well, during that episode, I talked about how much I wanted to give context to a lot of this, but I couldn't because it was so packed. So what I wanted to do was, I'm going to do an episode of the the banks, you know, we'll do, this is the left bank episode, and then next week we'll do the right bank. We're going to just dive in deep here and give some history and context to that episode. So either before you listen to this episode or after you listen to this episode, go back to season one and listen to the Bordeaux episode to give you a nice layout of the Appalachian system. Cause here we're going to talk about the development of the region and some of the more celebrated communes that are along the estuary. It'll all make sense in that episode. So when we think about Bordeaux, we think about how famous it is and how it kind of set a standard, especially for red wine around the world, the new world, the old world, it's a huge influence. And a lot of that influence comes from the left bank of Bordeaux. And for us as American wine consumers, the vintage of 1982 is kind of our entry into Bordeaux. I know that's pretty recent. So let's go all the way back. There's no need to go back to the Romans here. There were Roman plantings in this area, and I can, I'll touch on that in, in a minute, but it really comes down to English rule starting in 1152. This was where the Bordeaux region started to provide wine to the British Empire. And this is a time when the majority of the wine being made in Bordeaux was all the way towards the south in what is called Grave. And the British Empire gave privileges to winemakers in this area. So there was a very rapid expansion of vineyards planting to get wine made for the British Empire to make that money. And in Grave, the second big deal of Bordeaux naturally occurred. It, there are these mounds of gravel naturally occurring through years and millennia of deposits 
that the French called croup or hillocks. There's these big mounds of gravel and clay and limestone and wine was made here. And this was basically um, considered medieval Bordeaux, if you will. But it was not the Bordeaux wines that we know today. The word claret, you hear that a lot when you talk about Bordeaux and the British Empire. Well, the word claret comes from this time because there wasn't a focus of single varieties or what stuff like that. This was just field blends and the wine was red and it was sort of light and it could make it to Britain without going bad. And this is what claret was, the rise of that word. Then in the mid 15th century, I think around 1453 or so, the English lose power. The French come back into power in this area and a lot of capital is lost because the English are gone. So all that is filled in by mostly the Germans and the Dutch. I even read there's some Irish coming in. Now, at this point, because of the British rule for so long, this was a thriving trade area in port town. Wine, not only wine, but cereal and other products. The Dutch were big trading people. So they were in Bordeaux, and they were trying to figure out a way to streamline trade even more, even though we had an estuary and, you know, the Atlantic Ocean right there. And this is where everything starts to sort of change for the left bank and puts us on the path to where we are today. This is when a man by the name of Jean Dupontac marries into a family and through a dowry acquires a chateau. And he starts to plant vines. This is where the this is where the word chateau begins, sort of, in Bordeaux, in the left bank specifically. The word chateau is the word used in French for a home or an estate that is passed down through a lineage of nobility. So when Pontac took this place over with his wife. His wife's father was a mayor, and I believe that must have had some sort of nobility to it. So this was the Chateau Pontac. He named it Aubryon, and he started planting vines, which is really cool because this is a first-growth chateau. And all this was happening in Grave, the place with those croups, the natural hillocks with all that gravelly soil. And the wines from this particular estate began to be, well, they were celebrated in Bordeaux, but the at a certain point, the family goes to London specifically with a marketing campaign for their wines, and these wines start to gain popularity there. This is one of the first times that a an actual chateau or an estate is talked about and celebrated in London. But then this is crazy, wine lovers, is the Aubryon didn't was not going to have all this monopoly for long because the Dutch had this idea. And this wasn't an idea specifically for wine as for trade in general, but it ended up being how the left bank of Bordeaux developed. And this is what I find so unique about Bordeaux. More than any other region in the world, this is just such a, just crazy how this worked out. Most of the land north of Bordeaux proper towards the Atlantic Ocean was considered swampland. It was just grazing land for animals and cereal fields. But 
the Dutch thought that if they drained this swampy area, pump out the water, plant reeds so that the water evaporates, and then create channels to divert the water so it never forms a swamp again. Not only did this streamline trade, but it created about 5,000 acres of habitable land along the estuary. And a result of this were more hillocks or croup. So the natural croups that were like naturally occurred in Grave were now built along the estuary towards the Atlantic. These were large terraced mounds of raised thick gravel with a clay base and some chalk and some limestone, and they were raised above sea level. So you basically had new terroir, and wine was very popular, obviously, so more and more chateaux were being built in these small communes along the estuary, Pauillac, Saint-Estef, Saint-Julien. And this is what led to the dominance of Cabernet Sauvignon on the left bank of Bordeaux. We had two things going on here. We had the soil, which was gravel on these croups, had excellent drainage, even in an area that was you know, traditionally a flood zone, didn't really flood because of the raised gravel mounds. Also, the proximity to the water had a lake effect where frost didn't really hit these vines. Frost did more was a problem more inland. So you basically had one of the most perfect areas for Cabernet Sauvignon. Little side note here, I find it just so fascinating that, you know, these famous places like Burgundy is celebrated because of its natural occurring chaotic soils from millennia of, you know, geographical activity, whereas Bordeaux is celebrated for the same for for its soil composition, but a lot of it was built by humans. Whoa. This, of course, began an expansion north, and this is where the chateaus started being built. And what's very interesting now is a shift started happening. Because the French and the English were at odds with each other, the English imposed high duties on anything imported from France, making claret not a very good value anymore. So if the English were going to spend a bunch of money on wine... They wanted good quality. And this is where the shift goes from Claret to the Bordeaux that we know today. And by the end of the 18th century, the Chateau thing, the Chateau hierarchy of the Chateau system was well established. I read that there are records in the London Gazette going back to the early 1700s announcing the sale of parcels of new vintages or new wine from Chateau Lafitte, Margot, and Latour. And because this good quality fine wine trend took hold and developed by the 1855 classification. There was already, everyone kind of knew what the best chateaus were. And there was a three-tier system in Bordeaux. You had the owner of the chateau, then you had the merchant. And between that, the middleman was the broker. The brokers were the ones that were asked by the Bordeaux Board of Commerce to come up with a list of chateaux for the 1855 classification. But what's interesting is, before the 1855 classification, there were many attempts to classify the chateaus in this area. This was just a big ask from the government, and it held. 
And I mean, it really held. The whole idea of this classification system was not just to be set in stone. It was, in theory, a classification system that was supposed to evolve, allowing other winemakers in the area and chateau to eventually be incorporated into this list. But that never happened. I read a quote that said, there is nothing official about the classification of the Medoc wines, nor is it definitive or irrevocable. The classification always leaves open the hope for all properties of a new and higher standing for their wines. Never happened. What did happen is the 1855 classification became the best PR marketing tool the brokers ever had. And the classification system became not an evolving thing, but it was like holy and you didn't mess with it. I mean, don't get me wrong, for a long time, other properties always kept on trying to get in, but the people that are already part of it wouldn't let them in. There was a quote by Anthony Barton, who was the owner of Two Class Growths. He said, quote, There's plenty of conflict and envy between owners as it is. Just imagine the repercussions if some of their properties were demoted in a new classification. There would be blood in the streets. Okay, that's a little, that's a little much. I mean, Bordeaux did go through some things. It went through phylloxera, went through world wars, it went through economic problems, all that stuff. And there was a time in the 19, like before the 1980s, and this is a lot, a lot of wine regions in the world were having problems. And Bordeaux was not safe from that. But it was the 1982 vintage, like I said in the beginning of this episode, when a man named Robert Parker came to town obsessed with Bordeaux and started writing about it. Not just writing about it, because that's what a lot of British critics would do. He wrote about it, but he scored it. And that was the key. Giving a score to a wine simplifies it and allows the consumer to understand it more instead of having to read stuff and say, oh, it's a what number? Okay, I'm going to buy that. To put this into context, I found this another really great quote by Michel Tesseron of Chateau Lafitte Rocher. Quote, before 1982, nobody talked about fruit in a wine. Like, what? Okay, back to the quote. But ever since 1982, we all tried to pick only when the grapes were properly ripe. Okay. Okay, back to the quote. Before then, means before 1982, I guess, you picked the first vines when they were still unripe and the last vines when they were overripe. Unquote. That's messy. So here we have Bordeaux with the classification system, the popularity of Bordeaux, the scores... And this is the era of en premiere where you can buy wines before they're even, you know, in bottle. And also this is the era of the second label, meaning if a first growth or a classified growth makes very expensive wine, they can also make a second label that's a little bit less expensive they can offer to, I don't know, the plebes. Because <laughs> make no mistake, this, these wines are really expensive and they can last for a long time in bottle and they can age and they develop and it's beautiful. But today, you know, we have the classifications and then we have the second labels within those classifications. And also, you know, it's not just the first growths that are most popular. There are growths like third growths that are getting popular. It changes. But these, these chateaux have since 1855 
been maintaining their quality. It's almost like getting a Michelin star. Once you get a Michelin star for a restaurant, the stress is you got to keep the star. The one thing about these chateaux is they never have to worry about losing it, even though in theory they could, but they never will. But they still have to maintain their quality to maintain their reputation. Crazy. So with that being said, let's go through these communes that have these croup or or hillocks that are on the estuaries that are celebrated, that have these classifications in them. It's very hard to generalize style, but you can kind of get a sense of the style of these places. It's just, it's very cool. So we'll start with Margot. Margot is home to about a third of all the classified growths. It's only about five miles long from end to end. It has about 4,000 acres under vine and about, they make about six, over six million bottles a year. It's the second largest commune after Grave, and well over 50% of the vines are Cabernet Sauvignon, obviously. Here, Cabernet Sauvignon ripens about three to five days earlier than other communes. There's also some clay deposits, which Merlot really likes. And the result is a very general misleading statement about this wines from this area, that they're sort of like a little more elegant, a little more lithe, a little more lighter. That's not, it's kind of misleading. I, there are some powerful wines coming from here, but it has, they do have an elegance to them, but it's a big appellation. So that's not hundred percent the case. You just got to taste through them. <laughs> Going North, we had Saint-Julien. It's smaller, about 2,300 or give or take acres under vine. Only produces about a little over 5% of the wine in the Medoc, but 90% of its vineyards are classified growths yielding about 6 million bottles a year. It's said here that the best wines come from vineyards that are right along the estuary, taking advantage of that lake effect, and that the result are wines that have a very fruit-forward expression, but are very structured, and at the same time, elegant. You know, that's, that's kind of a, general, that's a, very, it's a big generalization. What they're saying is like, the fruit is the first real prominent thing that your, your palate enjoys, and the structure and the power is there, but the elegance always holds, and I believe that's in the acidity. And obviously, with all those class growths, Cabernet Sauvignon is dominant. Now, we go to, wow, Poyac. This is, Poyac is the Bordeaux that you know. It is the, the dense, powerful, huge ideas that are being copied, or not copied, but influenced winemakers in the new world and some of the way some of the old world ages their wine today. And in this commune, it's kind of, this one you can, you can there's no generalizations here. The wines of Poljak are about, are about power and ageability and structure and density. They are beautiful, deep, soulful, age-worthy wines, full stop. You have about, I don't know, around 3,000 acres under vine, around there, that pump out about 7 million bottles a year. And this place is home to 18 classified growths. And obviously, Cabernet Sauvignon is dominant, like 60%, 62%. And as we get closer to the ocean and what is what's once called Boss Medoc, or just now just the Medoc, is Sana Steph. It's home to five classified growths, and we're getting closer to where Cab doesn't thrive as much as it could south of here. 
And the best Cabernet is mostly towards the estuary, which makes absolute sense because of the lake effect. But in recent years, they've kind of shifted where 50% is cab, but they have a significant amount of Merlot here as well because of the clay deposits. And that's about 40%. So that's, that's a big percentage of Merlot to be blended. And then, of course, there's some Cab Franc, Malbec, and Petit Verdot, which are the other blending varietals in Bordeaux in general. I read somewhere that the wines of, of Saint-Ostef used to be tough as nails. It took forever to age. And they're still like that today. They're big, they're robust, they're solid, but they have a nice perfume to them because of the climactic conditions in the area. And this is going to be in the Bordeaux episode from season one, but I must mention Pesec Léonion, which is mostly a white wine producing region, but this is where um, Aubryon is. So this is where it kind of all began. And this is the largest commune coming in about over 4,000 acres under vine, but it's 25% white, which is a big percentage. And then they do about 80% red. But here there tends to be a little bit more Merlot than Cabernet Sauvignon, whereas Merlot is 52%. Cabernet Sauvignon is about 42%. And then there's a 79 to 80% of Sauvignon Blanc that gives you an idea of what they're focusing on there. And because this area is like an OG earth pile <laughs> of hillock, the soils are very, very diverse, more so than the, you know, the human-made hillocks of the north. And it's said that it's very hard to generalize the style here because of that. That's a very old school terroir driven idea. Pretty cool. Okay. Yes. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Putting the first Bordeaux episode into some context with some history and some styles to give you guys, you know, a supplement to that episode. Next week, we're going to get nice with the right bank. See you then. Fine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. E&J Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pairs Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide spectrum of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wine. Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but this is a wine podcast. Whether you are new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. Visit thebarrelroom.com today to find your next favorite, where shipping is available.